Welcome to the Indianola First podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. If you heard last week's message, you're about to get a double dose. Are you okay with that? Jesus talked about anger and murder. We talked about that last week. Then he went right into what we're going to talk about this week, lust and adultery. And he follows the same format. He states the law so many of the Jews he was speaking to absolutely knew. They knew the law. They knew the letter of the law. But then Jesus moves past the mere letter of it and he goes right to the spirit of the law, which of course is much more difficult to follow. You see, so many within the audience that Jesus was talking to had become puffed up in regards to their ability to follow the law in their own power. Turn to your neighbor and say, in their own power. And church, we do the same thing when when we think that our self-effort can somehow make us worthy of Christ or that we can somehow earn his favor by doing something or living in a certain way. Jesus, again, uses some shock and awe-type bomb dropping to get his point across. And in Matthew 5, 27 through 28, he says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. Takes it to a whole new level. First of all, let me define adultery for you. Adultery is sexual sin that is committed while you are married. Sexual sin outside of the covenant of marriage is defined as fornication. Both sins involve lust or having over-desires. That's what lust is. It's an over-desire. But the name we give to the sin differs depending on the individual's marital status. And understand that this verse, although it was specifically dealing with the sexual sin of a married man who is lusting, or having over-desires for a woman that is not his wife, also deals with a much greater subject matter than, than just this. And, and I'm gonna be taking some rabbit trails this morning. I want you to follow me, because there's a lot I need to say, there's a lot I have to say, and I want you to hear my heart, okay? Nod your head, you'll hear my heart, okay? Don't hear what you wanna hear. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We listen for what we wanna hear, and we go, hmm, yeah. I want you to hear my heart today. Understand that, that this, this subject, this verse, is dealing with more than just the specific sin of a man who's lusting after someone who is not his wife. And it's really important to know that you shouldn't take a couple phrases or verses in the Bible and create a whole theology around them without comparing and studying the rest of what the Bible has to say in the subject. For example, separating this verse about adultery from other verses in the Word of God that deal with fornication or verses that just deal with sexual sin in general is not good Bible study practice. You can't separate them. You gotta look at it as a whole. In fact, that's what good hermeneutics is all about. Hermeneutics is your ability or it's the ability to interpret. Hermeneutics is interpreting the Bible. And there's a level of interpretation that we have, to, we have to make and we have to be good at, we have to be skilled at. Letting 
scripture, interpret scripture, and not creating whole theologies out of single verses or small portions of scripture, that's good hermeneutics. And I would even say that we need to be careful when saying we take the Bible literally. I mean, yes, we do believe it is literal as an interpreted whole. But if you are saying that you are a literalist with every verse individually, then you believe also that we must become cannibals in order to be saved. And I say that because Jesus said in John 6, 53, that unless you eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, you have no life. I don't see anybody eating his literal flesh or drinking his literal blood. This is why looking at the full word of God and determining your personal theology is so vital, it's so important. The Bible has to be digested as a whole and not just, as, not just the random individual sections or verses that seem to back up what you want to believe. Did you hear what I said? Because that should hit all of us right between the eyes a little bit. I'm gonna say that again. The Bible has to be digested as a whole and not just the random individual sections or verses that seem to back up what you would like to be true. And it, it gets dicey sometimes when we dive deep down into the word of God, when we start deciding what it really says. In their minds, these Jews that Jesus was talking to, they weren't adulterers if they hadn't physically committed adultery. I'm not an adulterer. I, I've never slept with a woman while being married to another. This is where the letter of the law could be followed. It could be. And it was by many of them. But when Jesus shocked and awed them with the spirit of the law, they were completely stunned. He took this law thing to the next level. He was saying that if you even look at a woman with a nurtured lust, that you committed adultery, that you're guilty of adultery. And again, lust by definition is an over-desire. And in this particular scripture, Jesus is talking about sexual lust. And let's be clear. He wasn't saying that the mere sight of a woman accompanied by a tempting thought was adultery. It was, it was seeing and then nurturing the evil desire that we are tempted with. And there's a difference. Temptation, church, is not a sin. I don't want anybody to get full of condemnation because temptation is not a sin. So if the devil throws a tempting thought at you, you must take that thought and crucify it immediately before it becomes sin. That, that's how it works. Don't get all full of guilt and shame because you were tempted. Temptation's a part of of, of the war that we fight, the, the, the battles that we fight every single day, that's part of it. But tempting itself, the temptation itself, is not sin. James 1.15 says, Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Again, tempting thoughts are not sin until you decide to walk down the paths that those tempting thoughts are inviting you to walk down. Even if we're just talking mentally and, and, and not physically acting on them. And let me be real here. It doesn't take very long before that tempting thought takes its first step down the path. That's when the line is crossed and it becomes more than a mere temptation. It's now a temptation that is being nurtured. This is the point of sin. And in this particular example, adulterous sin. 
you know, a, a, a beautiful woman might walk by. And Alyssa and I might be walking along and maybe we're shopping. And Does anybody shop still these days? Or is shopping sitting in front of your computer going click, click, click? That's kind of fun too. How many shop in bed? That's, that's a fun thing too. Let's go shopping. But let's say we're walking along and this beautiful woman comes by and let's say I notice her and I said, whoa, that's a beautiful woman. A tempting thought comes in and says, you know, take a look, a long look as she walks by. Okay, that's temptation. Then if I, in my head, I don't crucify it, in my heart, I don't crucify that thought and I go, yeah, good idea. <laughs> temptation. That turns to sin because the tempting thought was nurtured. Do you understand what I'm saying? That, that's when it becomes sin. It's important for you to understand that. The Fire Bible notes say it this way, which I thought these were awesome. A lot of you have Fire Bibles. But it says, What Christ condemns is not the sudden thought that Satan may place in a person's mind or an improper desire that arises suddenly within you. Rather, it is a wrong thought or desire that is accompanied by the approval of one's will. Accompanied by the approval of one's will. It is having an immoral desire that begins to seek fulfillment if the opportunity presents itself. I'm tempted, now I'm seeking opportunity to fulfill that evil desire. That's sin. And let's think about this even further, this, this verse in, in Matthew. Just because this verse is specifically calling out men doesn't mean that it only pertains to them. Our world has become so mixed up with sexual lust that, that this verse, when interpreted and understood along with other verses in the Word of God, also speak to women lusting after men. It speaks to same-sex attractions that the Bible calls unnatural. It speaks to pornography, internet relationships that lead you to or even just toy with the idea of virtual sexual encounters. In church, we all know couples who are divorced over these kinds of things. You see, the letter of the law says, I'm good. I, I, I'm married, but I've never slept with another woman while I've been married. I, I haven't committed adultery. I'm good. Letter of the law, I'm fine. But what about all that other stuff? What about all the thoughts that you entertain? Those temptations that come in that you nurture and you go down those paths to where it becomes sin. Jesus was making it very clear that you're not innocent just because you haven't officially, by definition, committed the actual act of adultery. And come on, the rate at which mankind invents new ways of sinning, it, it, it's, it's almost dizzying. Romans 1, 28 through 32 says, Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. You're like, thanks for the encouragement, Pastor Barry. This is the word of God. And that says this, they invent new ways of sinning. They invent new ways of sinning. Church, we see it all over. Some of you might have even been a part of inventing new ways of sinning. 
coming up with new ideas to, to fulfill that lust thing, that, to gratify those lustful desires. And they disobey their parents. Let's just throw that one in there too. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. And let's not forget to talk about those that would engage in encouraging others to fall to temptation in these verses. Those who are sexually flirtatious. This, this verse in, in Matthew chapter 5 regarding uh, ad adulterous behavior, even looking at another woman, as Jesus puts it, it includes a whole lot more. What about those who are sexually, sexually flirtatious? And by the way, that goes for men or women. I think when you begin to look at what Jesus was really saying here, you have to think about his words in reference, again, to all sexual sin and lustful behaviors. What about dressing uh, promiscuously? Well, if someone falls into lust because of the way I dress, that's on them, not on me. I mean, I can't help it that I have this body. I can't help it that they're perverted. And if that is your attitude, you're right in the fact that their sin is on them. But we also must not forget that we have responsibilities to one another. The Bible says we ought not behave in ways that cause others to sin. I know it's not popular to talk about these things, but I'm not too popular, so I've got nothing to lose. <laughs> a, a great rule of thumb to live by. Are your actions, is your attire, do you in all that you do and say, are you pointing people to Christ or are you just trying to get people to look at you? Because that goes to the issue of the heart that Jesus is talking about. It moves past the letter of the law and goes right to the spirit of the law. And these things have been issues in the church since biblical times. Look at what the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10. He says this, and I want women to be modest. Don't get mad at me here. That's the Bible, right? And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. That rubs society the wrong way. I don't care how you slice or dice that one. But let's look at it legalistically real quick. And I'm not saying we should do that, but, but we're going to do that just for, for discussion's sake. A legalistic view of this verse would automatically produce some rules. Women should have plain hairstyles. No gold or flashy jewelry. No pearl necklaces or earrings. And, and they should only be allowed to wear inexpensive clothes. I mean, you're shopping at Walmart from here on out. But what is the spirit of the law here? We reread that, and, we, and some people make rules out of it, but what's the spirit of the law here? It's carry yourself in a way that causes everyone who sees you to see Jesus. That's the point. That's the point. Is it wrong for someone to wear earrings? I, I, don't, I certainly don't think so. Well, the Bible says you shouldn't put jewelry on. You're missing the point. He's making a point here. Don't attract attention to yourself. That's not good. That's not right. 
Everything you do, say, and are should point to Jesus. And yes, we should look our best. I, I believe in looking good. We should take care of our bodies. That's a good thing. Those things can point to Christ. We're taking care of his creation. But when the motive of your heart is to have people just see you, that crosses over into an issue. You know, there's, there's a genius and a profoundness to Christ's words in Matthew. I think that's why the Sermon on the Mount is just considered, I mean, it's top dog of teaching. It's just top dog. They're so laser-focused, and they go right past the letter of the law to the spirit behind the law. He goes right to the issues and the motives of the heart. These waters, they obviously can be tricky to navigate. When does crossing the line actually happen in these kinds of behaviors? The best thing I can say is mind your own heart. And we say mind your own business, mind your own heart. You may not fully understand someone else's behaviors. If you go down the road of legalism to achieve holiness and try to make everybody holy around you, you will eventually come to a place where humans define what is right and wrong, and then who's God? Humans or God? Lists of rules are adopted into our thinking, and those who don't follow your rules, they're just cast out. I'm going to give you an example, and this is dangerous, okay? Do you love me? All right. Pastors don't talk about this stuff because it just causes too much controversy. And here I am, just stirring it up. Here's the example. Two women come to church. The first woman has loved Jesus her whole life. She is single and has watched all of her friends, Christian and non-Christian alike, find the love of their lives, and then they're married. She is very tired of being single and decides to do something about it. The second woman has never been in church, but is at her wit's end. She has lived a pretty promiscuous life. On this particular Sunday morning, they both are wearing the same outfit. The outfit is rather revealing and attracts too much attention, the wrong kind of attention. The the first woman just wants to be noticed once and for all. The second woman doesn't know any better, I mean, essentially. Who's the most wrong in this scenario? Is it the first woman who knows that she is dressing in a way that is attracting attention to herself? Is it the second woman who doesn't really know that how she's dressing may be causing others to stumble? Is it those individuals whose attention these women are getting, are they just lust buckets and it's their, are they the most wrong? Is it the judgmental people in the church that question anybody wearing any apparel at any time? Is it your pastor because he's asking you these questions in the first place? Who's the most wrong? And my answer to the question is this. The question, who is the most wrong in this scenario? It's this. It's a dumb question. And I'm the one who made it up. And I did it on purpose because that's what we do. We make these judgment calls. We get these ideas. We put them together. And we start, hmm, hmm, yeah, that person, hmm, hmm. We judge. Not from a right motive. 
It's a dumb question because it assumes that we know the motives of the heart, which we never actually can know. We may think we can know, but we never really can. So mind your own heart in every given situation, church. Mind your own heart. Don't dress to get people to look at you. I mean, some of you, man, God has made you so beautiful. I mean, I didn't, I didn't get that. So God did not, I mean, look at me. See, I'm doing, look at me, look at me. I mean, some of us are blessed with beauty beyond belief, what the world calls beauty. We shouldn't live with the philosophy, flaunt it if you got it, right? Don't dress to get people to look at you. Don't judge those who don't know any better. Get your mind on your creator and not on his creation. Amen. There was an old poem I used to know. Little, little David, or David, King David was smitten down to his socks till his eyes caught that Bathsheba fox. You know. <laughs> Don't judge good people for wanting to hold a standard either. Questions like this will take you down legalistic paths every time. The truth of who is right and wrong lies in the heart and is only really known by God himself. Maybe the individual, if they're being honest with themselves, can admit to their own heart motives. But the only one who knows, who really knows and always knows the truth, the truth that's in the heart is God himself. Mind your own heart. That's the key. Before you go to that place of setting up legalistic boundaries and rules for everyone within your mind, check the status of your own heart. You know, historically in the past, the church has always placed the blame on promiscuous women for these lustful, adulterous sins. You're causing people to lust. Harlot. Temptress. As of late, it is now the individual with a perverted, lustful mind who always seems to be at fault. You looked at me, pervert. It's, the pendulum has swung the whole, of the, the whole of the direction. My question is this, why does the pendulum have to swing from one end to the other? How about we just mind our own hearts and let Christ rule over us, then the motives will be right, and these kinds of issues would be easily resolved. Love. Love does it. Jesus goes on in Matthew 5 and uses even more shock and awe to make his point. Matthew 5, 29 through 30, he says, Now if your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one part one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, yeah, actually, you know, here, let me just point this out. A lot of people in the church don't believe in hell. Jesus just talked about it here. He just verified that hell is real. Do you see that? Okay. I've been a born-again Christian for almost, well, over 30 years. I've met a lot of Christians who say they take the Bible literally, but I've never met anyone who plucked out their eye or cut off their hand as a result of habitual sin. So there you go, literalists. Be careful when you say that. There's truth in what you're saying, but make sure you qualify it. 
Jesus is talking to God's people here. They have been living under the old covenant for centuries upon centuries. They, these people had become so entrenched in the letter of the law that they were missing the whole point. They were missing the spirit behind the law. And Jesus teaches them these new concepts, starting with the Beatitudes, then talking about unresolved anger in your heart being the same as murder, then lustful thoughts and imaginations being the same as an adulterer. Understand what those that were hearing Christ's words for the first time understood. Murderers, if they were found guilty according to the law, the letter of the law, were punished by death. Okay? Adulterers, fornicators, those that engaged in, in, engaged in sexual uh, activity with animals, those who had homosexual sex, those who committed incest, all of these were punishable by death. Look it up. It's in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 18 through 20. Read it. Punishable by death. That was their law. Of course, this does, does not include those who were victimized by these acts. Now, you you got to understand that death was the punishment for those who willingly engaged in these behaviors and not those who were forced against their will. So don't, don't heap any, any, any condemnation on yourself if you've been, the, the, been a victim of something like that. That's different. It's not what Jesus is talking about here at all. So these people, though, they knew the punishments that were involved with these sins, and now Jesus was, in fact, upping the ante on what qualified as adultery and sexual sins in general. He said plainly, those who are guilty of these sins, even if they are just temptations of the heart that are entertained to the point of sin, they are punishable by hell. Everybody's so encouraged this morning, I know. Notice that sinning against the letter of the law was punishable by physical death, whereas sinning against the spirit of the law is punishable by spiritual death. Jesus said punishable by hell, not punishable by death. And just as spiritual eternal life in heaven is exceedingly better than our earthly life, spiritual eternal death is exceedingly worse than our physical death. Just as the spirit of the law is difficult and more difficult to follow than the letter of the law, so is the punishment worse. Eternal life in heaven. Church, it's worth living this life without uncontrolled body parts that constantly lead you to sin. Eternal death is so real that you're better off without these uncontrolled body parts, so get rid of them, cut them off, pluck them out. Again, this had to be shocking for the people listening. And it's a bit shocking for us here today. But it was especially shocking to those that had their salvation riding on their own abilities to legalistically uphold the law. Thus, the shock and awe of Jesus' words. More than likely, it brought about a conviction of sin and a humbling repentance to those who already knew that they couldn't uphold the law in and of themselves. And it brought about a deeper sense of pride and a hardening of the heart to those that arrogantly thought they could live up to the law. And it's the same thing today. I, I examine your hearts a little bit here, but those religious individuals who become spiritually arrogant and prideful in their ability to be holy in and of themselves... They just dig in deeper. They dig in deeper to their self-denial. 
Those who hear the words today and humble themselves and repent, they find righteousness that is not achievable by any other way. What was the point Jesus was making in, in all those statements? He was making the point that you, and hear me, this is it, you cannot be good enough to deserve what he did for you. You can't do it aside from his shed blood. You can't become good enough. You can't live holy enough. You can't do it. But don't beat yourself up for it because he provided a way when there was no way. That's the thing. There is so much grace. We just sang about it. In fact, is the worship team still here? Because in a little bit, I'm going to have you come up. I'm going to change something. We're going to sing that new song today instead of the song I, had, I was going to play. So just worship team, get ready. Go back into the green room. Please. See, I'm nice. These people who humble themselves, they begin to understand that true righteousness or the ability to be right and and right in, in right standing or right in the eyes of God, they, they believe, they begin to understand and believe that true righteousness can only be found in Christ. It can only be found through his blood. It's the best news ever told. How many have ever failed in trying to do what was right? I mean, come on, just be honest, raise your hand. Use it at home, raise both hands, because, you know, you're, you're not here today, so you're doubly, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding, so glad you're with us. We've all failed, and if you fail even a little bit, if you're not perfect, if you've never been, if you've messed up in your past, your present, or your future, you don't get heaven, but God. He comes in with his mercy and his grace and his shed blood and he makes a way when there is no way. His righteousness is freely offered to those who humbly submit to his authority and rule over their lives. And it's called being born again, church. And when you finally lay down all the pride of self-effort and you give into his wooings of the heart, I mean, the Holy Spirit's always wooing you. Come on, come on, come, come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's always wooing us back to him, wooing him deeper into a relationship with him. When you, when, when you give in to those wooings, you will begin again. Your slate is wiped clean and the, and, the, and the love you feel for him becomes the prompting within your heart to behave holy. You live holy because of those promptings in your heart. It's not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. Church, this is a big deal because so many people get caught up in the religiosity of legalism, in self-effort. Why do you think there's such a thing called defeated Christians? That doesn't even make sense. And you know, by the way, you're still human. You will mess up from time to time. Jesus took care of that too. That's how great he is. His word says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. So when we do mess up, we go, God, I just, I just messed up again. I don't, I don't even know why I did that. I don't know why that came out of my mouth. I don't know why I behaved that way. Just confess to him. He gets it. 
He's faithful and just to forgive you. And every time you experience that loving forgiveness, your heart melts for him all over again. And those mess ups start happening less and less. The deeper your relationship and and the intimacy you have in your relationship with Christ, the less attractive sin's lure becomes. You make the devil's fishing lure of temptation less and less effective as you become more and more intimate with Christ. There's a picture for you in that. So many people live in the vicious cycle of sin, self-effort, condemnation, then death. When Christ desires for you to live in the magnificent cycle of grace, humility, holiness, then life forevermore. I don't know where your heart is at today. I'm not here to bring the hammer of God's word. I'm, I'm here to say, mind your own heart today and ask yourself, where am I at, really? Maybe you've never heard the message of grace that Christ offers us all, and you need to receive him into your heart and become born again for the very first time. Maybe you are that person who has been putting so much self-effort into your walk with Jesus that you found yourself bound to sin, full of self-loathing and condemnation, and abundant life seems far from you. Maybe some other part of the sermon struck a chord within your heart, but no matter who you are or where you're at, spiritually speaking, I want to just invite you this morning. Worship team, you can come out. Come out, come out, wherever you are. I want to invite you this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to get some things right to get it right with the Lord all over again. I want to invite you to come down. Why do we come down? Why do we, why do we have altar calls, so to speak? Where's the altar at anyway in here? Well, make this whole front end, this whole front platform, make that an altar. You can make an altar wherever you're at, sure, but there's something special when you step out of yourself, when you lay down any pride that you might have and in, a, in, in an act of humility, you come forward and say, God, yeah, I need to stop this self-effort stuff. I need to realize that all of my righteousness, all of it, it comes from you and it comes through you, through your shed blood, through your mercy and your grace. There's nothing magical about coming down front. It's however always humbling to come forward. It doesn't leave much room for pride, and the altar has always been a place where God meets his people, church. Always. So I'm just going to walk over here, and we're going to begin to play that song, that new one that we did today, because it just has words that, that back up everything that I just preached about. Would you bow your heads? Lord, we come before you today, God, and we lay down our self-effort. God, we know that the motives of our heart must be right, and the only one that truly knows the motives of our heart is you. When we're honest, God, we, we, can, we can have those revealed to us. You do that. But Lord, we know that truly it's only you who knows the real motives. God, today... We lay those down. We say we want to be pure. We want to be holy. 
not because of what we've done or what we're going to do or because we have some false sense of security in our, in our own ability or efforts to, to live right, but God, because we are overwhelmed this morning because of your mercy and grace, absolutely overwhelmed. We love you, Jesus, and we give you our hearts today. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.